Why can't a pharmacy dispense cannabis products? Well, the answer right now is because you need a license. And if you need a retail sales license, well, first of all, you're not selling medical anymore. You're selling retail uh, recreational products. And number two, you can't get a license in a business that does anything other than sell cannabis. So like you can't have your pharmacy license. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Law in Canada. I'm Russell Bennett, a cannabis lawyer in Toronto. With me today is Matt Maurer, a lawyer and partner at the Toronto law firm Torkin Mains. He is the co-chair of the Cannabis Law Group and the chair of the Franchise Law Group. He's also an accomplished commercial litigator, having appeared before many courts in Canada, and provides businesses and regulatory advice to cannabis industry players, including licensed producers, ancillary services, entrepreneurs, and foreign businesses. He frequently appears on the media to comment on issues pertaining to the cannabis industry and speaks at industry conferences across the continent. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Good morning, Matt. Maurer, how are you? Good, Russell. Good morning. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you. Welcome to the show. I'm so, I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you. I'm happy to, happy to be here. Glad you, glad you asked me. Well, you know, the last time we chatted was uh, God, a year or two ago uh, for the Toronto Lawyers Association. We did like a review. Yes. It's COVID happening. time. It's COVID time. The, the time's all messed up. Yes. I, I can't even remember what day it is sometimes. So I'm, I'm, just, uh, I'm just glad to be connecting with you today. Um, now, listen, uh, for our listeners, I want you to just give me like a 30 second who you are and what you do so we can get, we at least, you know, I want. I want to hear it from the way you see yourself. Ah, <laughs> that's always an interesting perspective, I guess, how some people see themselves. No, so uh, I'm a I'm a the the head of the cannabis law group at Torque and Mains LLP, which is a law firm in downtown Toronto. Um, I've been practicing cannabis law. Oh, I'd have to check. Um, five years, six years, um, and um, we really do the business side of things. So we don't. You know the, the 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 criminal component of it. We don't we don't do as you know. That's sort of a specialized. Even the constitutional stuff is a specialized area. So you know we basically take what would be traditional business law and layer over top of it the regulatory components and all the nuances that that goes along with the cannabis industry. So um, as we as we started, you know the industries evolved, right? Like at, at, at first it was at least in terms of the business side. Uh, you know, you had, I remember when I started, there was 26 or 27 licensed producers and, you know, to get a pre, you know, to almost be ready to license, people would throw money at you. Right. I don't know what we're up to now, 700 or 800. Um, I think it's actually over 900 now. Is it? I stopped checking, you know, there was, yeah, a point yeah, me where, too. but it it's was like, a big deal. There was a point where it was a big deal when a new person was about to get a license. Everyone go, Oh my gosh, there's going to be another one. Um, and that was early days, you know, and then, so, you know, getting LPs licensed and then it was, you know, LPs going public, LPs raising money, LPs expanding into Africa and Malta and Germany and you name it. Um, and then we sort of had the retail train come along after that. And I don't think I'm missing anything, but uh, in Ontario with the lottery, how's that going to work and all the regulatory stuff that goes on with it. And then all of the... Um, the onslaught, if you will, of stores that opened all over the province and Alberta too and other provinces, but really in Ontario, it's just bonkers. Um, you know, and to the point now where it's it's sort of settling down and almost becoming like a regular industry. Uh, but, you know, uh, 
what's the next thing in cannabis? I don't know. There's certainly insolvencies going on. Um, there's a lot of litigation happening now. And I guess maybe that's a, a natural progression from any industry where it starts off new and everyone's friends and just excited to work together to, you know, a little bit more cutthroat and you, you haven't paid me for my product and I'm going to take you to court. So, <laughs> right. Okay, so you you you've been doing this for quite a while. Five years is a long time in the cannabis sector, legal sector, and and so what moved you to want to get into it in the first place? I mean, you were a commercial litigator before, right? So what yeah. what pushed you to say, you know what, this is a good area for me to get into? Yeah, yeah you know, it's it, it, it's not a glamorous story per se. Like I, as a, as a commercial litigator for a while, I was thinking, you know, I'd like to have an area of specialty. Um, I did general commercial disputes. So, you know, I tell people when people that don't know the word litigator, I'd say it's fights over money, you know, like commercial litigation is if you really distill it down to its simplest, it's fights over money or fights over property or things like that. It's not family law. It's not criminal law. It's going to court to fight over money uh, or real estate or what or whatnot. And um, I wanted to have a specialty. I wanted to develop some sort of niche and something I could do. And I explored things at a preliminary level for a while. You know, I thought maybe I could do business immigration as well. And I'd start reading the Immigration Act and I think I can't do this, you know, or, you know, maybe, maybe family law, like it's litigation. It's just a different subject matter. And then I, thought, I can't deal with the emotional component that goes with that. So I was kind of looking around, percolating for a while on something I wanted to do. And then um, it was around Christmas time one year uh, where I don't even think they had announced that they it might've been when they announced that there was a possibility that rec was going to go legal. Um, certainly there was, as I said before, there was already LPs on the medical side, but I looked at it and I thought, this is really fascinating. Like, I, I think the industry is fascinating. I think cannabis is fascinating. And I thought this is a brand new legal industry. Like it's going to be heavily regulated um, and they're going to need lawyers. And Basically, if you want to start a specialty, like everyone is starting from ground zero. So I said to myself, okay, I'm going to give it a year. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard of people that I've seen people that try to do a specialty. They don't give it enough time. They don't develop the expertise and they give up. And then I've also heard of people, I haven't really seen it myself, that spend far too much time developing a specialty and it doesn't go anywhere. So I thought a year will be good. So what I'm going to do is... I'm going to keep going to court, keep doing my commercial litigation practice like normal. But in the evenings and the weekends and all the extra time I can find, I'm going to learn everything I can about um, uh, the access to cannabis for medical purposes, regulations. Uh, I'm going to figure out what's going on in the industry. I'm going to network. I'm going to go to events. I'm going to do all these things. And let's see what happens in a year, you know. And um, for the first, I don't know how many months, of course, nothing. Like everything takes time. Um, and then I started with some crazy, you know, I would use the term crazy clients, small, you know, maybe not even turn into clients. You know, I get the phone call from someone who says, you know, I've, I've discovered a certain molecule in the plant that no one else has discovered. And <laughs> I want to, I want to, uh, I want to market it or, you know, I'm going to make cannabis trading cards, which, you know, I just, I think I don't see how that's going to go anywhere. Um, so it started with sort of inquiries like that. And then cannabis so, trading cards for real. Yeah. Like, yeah. They even had prototypes and, um, actually that's not a bad idea. It, look, I wish everyone well, and they're like all clients, all potential clients <laughs> in their business ideas. 
personally, I don't know who's going to spend money on cannabis trading cards. And even if you did, I, I think the hockey and baseball card industry is probably pretty tough to begin with. I can't imagine. <laughs> well, we're, I don't even know. Where you, I guess you'd sell them at retail stores. I don't. I don't know where you'd sell a pack. And, yeah. Yeah. You know? Do, do you do you turn the plant into a person for the card, or is it just a picture of a nug? I don't know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but no. And then and then you know gradually, it started with you know what I would call more legitimate. And traditional clients and businesses, you know, um, I need a contract because I've got something going on. And we'd start with that and we'd start with that. And then it gradually, you know, built up, you do good work and, and more people come to you. And then they talk to other people about, about you. And then uh, I spoke at MJ BizCon in Vegas. I have to check the year, but it was before legalization occurred because I was talking about what legalization was going to look like in the draft cannabis act had already come out. So it must have been, that's usually in November. So um, gosh, could it have been a year prior? I don't think so. Maybe it was right after. I don't know. I'm still on pandemic time, like I said. So, <laughs> right. um, but then things, you know, people get to know who you are and they call you and and off you go. And, and so it's been wonderful. You know, now it's five years or whatever later. And um, it's still interesting. Like uh, one thing I like about commercial litigation and also about cannabis is, Every time you get a new client or a new file to deal with, you have to learn about the business or about the situation. So, you know, you learn how LPs operate. You learn how retailers work. Um, you know, you learn about how private lenders are going to lend and what they what they think about on a business perspective from trying to engage in these. Because you're you're preparing agreements and you're hearing from your client, well, we're not going to do this, uh, you know, give this option, but we'll do this option. Uh, and you start to understand. And I find that fascinating. Like I, one thing I like about being a lawyer, there's a few things I like, I guess. Uh, but one thing I like about it is, you know, you're constantly learning um, new things about different things. And I find that really, really interesting. All right. So what's, what, what, what are some of the, let's go to the flip side. What are some of the mo more annoying questions you get from clients that are like, you know, you get them all the time. Like for, for example, for me, one of the questions I get a lot is, um, when, can I sell uh, retail online? You know, it's it's a in Ontario, and it's like, is anybody paying attention here? You can't, you know, Ontario has the only online platform available to sell, right. and that's just I get that question over and over and over again, and just like I, I don't understand why you don't know that yet. But anyway, but what for you? What what's a, an annoying question that you get a lot? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. You know, it's, I would have to think it's something, it's going to be things similar to that. Like I, if someone comes and they have no concept of what they're doing is permissible or legal, it's kind of like you've really jumped the planning aspect of your business and you're already talking to a lawyer about doing this, that, and the other. And either it means, you know, you don't have the foresight to look into your concept first and figure out if it's even legally permissible. Um, and this is different than someone who wants to do something create. Sometimes people want to do creative things and they want to know if it's permissible. That's a different, you know, consideration altogether. But, you know, like you say, oh, can I, I, I want to sell online. And it's, it's kind of like, well, you know, clearly you haven't done any research at all because it, that's a very obvious thing you would figure out right away. Or, you know, you're too lazy uh, for lack of a better word, to to do that, you just want to have someone give you the answer. And if that's the case, 
you know, you're probably not going to do very well if that's sort of how you operate when you, you can't invest the time to do it. So, um, you know, I think questions like that where people really haven't looked into stuff, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I think some of the frustration, um, and this isn't necessarily restricted to cannabis, but it's, it's being a lawyer is that people don't understand how lawyers operate and how lawyers work and how they bill and, and all of these things. And, you know, it's when someone renovates your house, you know, they build you a house and there's your house and you can see it. And here, here you go, you pay them, you know, people will call and they'll, they'll send you, they'll, they'll talk for 15 or 20 minutes or a half an hour about, and ask substantive questions. Can I, can I do this uh, online? Okay. Why not? And et cetera, et cetera. And then they get a bill for the 15, 20 minute call at the end of the month. And they say, well, what's this? You didn't do anything. I said, well, you know, what do you mean? We didn't do anything. We had a, a phone call and we talked about it. Well, you didn't draft anything or do anything. I said, well, that, that wasn't part of the, the program on this one. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, you know, it's, I think a lot of times that maybe you get this too, where people just want to, you know, I just have a quick question and it's, it's like, well, you know, I don't think people appreciate if, we answered every quick question for free. We'd have no time during the day because we'd be answering these questions at, at, at no end and, and no way to put food on the table at home. You know, Totally. Totally. I've answered so many free questions and I, I have now a policy that you have 15 minutes to pay something for 15 minutes. So I actually have like a little pay something for 15 minutes button on my website for that purpose. It's like, it's a, it's a way to gauge people's, um, uh, investment into their own idea at the beginning too because if they're just fishing around they can everybody searches google for everybody can find the answer online and they're calling you because they just want confirmation that they're doing something uh or they're doing they're doing something legal or doing something illegal yeah as far as regulatory regulatory yeah, you know what but, gets me to is i don't have any problem I, frequently and I'll, I'll have another one later today you know an initial call with someone about and we don't charge for that. You know, what's going on? Maybe it'd be half an hour, sometimes, you know, more, sometimes less. But what's going on, you know, give a high level sort of take on, on where what you think can be done and where you think you can go. I think clients also don't appreciate that, you know, we're not supposed to be giving legal advice until they retain us uh, for insurance purposes, for law society purposes. And, you know, we can't just give out advice to anyone who picks up the phone. Like we are you think cannabis is heavily regulated, like the legal profession is super regulated, um, you know, by ourselves, but there's still tons of rules in terms of confidentiality and conflicts and, and, and giving advice and, and all these things. And I think people just think, well, it's, it's just like picking up the phone and, and, you know, chewing on someone's ear for a bit to, to, to figure it out. And the same thing, I think, you know, this comes with uh, perhaps any service industry which is the billing and the and the and the accounts, right? It's I just I try to think that I'm a very reasonable person, um, you know. But obviously, in this profession, sometimes your patience gets tested a bit because mm. clients are more than happy to insist. You know, I'll, I'll get a phone call. Maybe you'll get this too. You get a phone call at nine in the morning. I need this contract, and I'd like it by four o'clock today. And it's like, well, that's not happening. Like it's you know, can't you just take one of your things and change the words or precedence and change the words? It's, well, no, that's, that's not, it, it's going to take time and et cetera. But 
you know, can you work on this over the weekend? Can we have a call at nine or 10? I've been on the phone till two in the morning before dealing with things. And that's fine. It's part of our job. But what, you know, what, as a service industry, it's kind of like, you know, then you turn around and you look at it and say, you know, it's been 90 days since we sent our account for that 2 a.m. phone call. It would be nice if you could pay it. Oh, yeah, 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 I'll get to it. And I think some of that is people see us as the the face of it, you know, the person they're talking to, but they don't realize like, well, you know, we've got to pay the receptionist and the associate and the rent and the lights and all those things that other businesses have. So just because we didn't, you know, we had a lengthy phone call, uh, there's still revenue that we need to generate and collect on and things. Well, and and if, you're, if you're a psychiatrist or a psychologist, right? So you're talking to a person for an hour that you're paying for their time and their expertise, whether or not they ask you questions or whatever, you're, you know, it's just a conversation, right? which which with a person who knows something that you don't, that may help you and shed some light on a problem you're having, right? And that that's worth something. And what you're saying is like, a lot of people don't really understand that a 15 minute phone call with someone who has spent five years working away at this thing called cannabis law has an expertise that is worth something and, and that's valuable, right? Right. Yeah. And I, and that's the thing. It's, it's some people get it, but some people just clearly don't. And, and, you know, it's the fact that you or I can answer their question in 10 minutes on the phone is a function of us already knowing it uh, because we've spent the time to do it. And so like, yeah, we should be compensated for spending that 10 or it's not just spending the 10 or 15 minutes. It's also, you know, trailing compensation, if you will, for having learned, spent years learning it all. Um, Because if you went to your normal, you know, Joe Blow corporate lawyer who like, you know, maybe you've got your regular lawyer and you ask them, uh, you know, something about uh, how does the security clearance work for LPs? Well, a normal lawyer would say, I don't, I actually don't know. I can look into that for you. They're going to charge you to research it. They're going to charge you to write a memo. They're going to charge you for the call to talk about the memo. Whereas someone else will say, well, okay, I don't want to do that. Pick up the phone and call call Matt or call Russell because they know. And it's like, well, yeah, we know. But <laughs> like the reason we know is because because we've done it and you're paying, like you said, you're paying for that knowledge, you're paying for that expertise. And it, I think it's also a function of the legal industry generally is that, I don't know what your policy is, but you know, when you hire a contractor to renovate your house, they don't agree to just do it and collect the payment when they're done. You know, they take a deposit, they take installments and yes. draws as they go. And yes. look, we can, it's open to us to do that. And in some cases we will definitely say, I will say with new clients, look, depending on what we're doing, um, you know, I'll take a small retainer. That's not the estimate, which is another, you know, people get confused. <laughs> right. But this isn't what it's going confusion. to cost. That's right. Yeah. The confusion between the retaining fee, the initial retainer fee, and the estimate is like, I remember I had a client and I said, okay, well, uh, I'd like a retainer uh, of 5000 please. Okay. And then as we moved along in the work, she thought that was the bill. That was the final amount. I'm like, no, no, no. We, we, there's two lawyers on this file, blah, blah, blah. You know, all this time is being spent. Look, here's the interim bill. What? And it's just this shock of like, well, how how specific do I have to get with initial retainer fee is not the amount of the bill, yeah. right? It just, I get very there. specific now. I get very, <laughs> right. You have it only, to. Well, it only takes one of those because the other thing is you don't want to be spending. I'd rather be spending, and I'm sure you would, time and energy talking to clients and doing things like that than 
calling people and saying, you know, explaining, well, this was the estimate, not the retainer. Why haven't you? And some of it's just, I think, unfortunately, as lawyers, you know, we see the best of people and we see the worst of them. And, you know, there's, there's clients that, uh, you know, I can think of examples. Thankfully, there's not a lot, but, you know, examples where you agree, you know, it's probably going to cost about X. And as it turns out, you know, it costs X plus a thousand dollars. And oftentimes what I'll do is, you know, if it's reasonable to do so, is I say, look, it's, it's X plus a thousand. The thousand was legitimately incurred. Like it took more time. It's not like we're sitting here grinding slow for the sake of it. Like we've got lots to do. Um, but anyway, I told you it was X. I'm going to write it down to X for you. And that will be the bill. Great. No problem. Um, you know, and then there's a comeback later and they say, well, or, or maybe in a different scenario, well, you know, I know you said it was X, but now I think it was worth X minus something. Right, you know, right. The contract, I don't know, like it, it wasn't as long as you wanted, like it accomplishes all the objectives, but I, I don't really understand the rationale. And then, so, okay, fine. So we reach an agreement on what it should be. I'm very collaborative. I try to create a solution. And then I've had instances where they come back later and say, well, now my partner who, you know, never existed before, they don't want to do that either. They want to pay half of that. And at some point you have to say, no, like, you know, we're working for free at this point. And like, I, Torque and Mains is 125, 130 lawyers. Like, I don't just get to do whatever I want. Like, if Russell's working on my file and I just say, oh, we're not going to get paid. It's like, well, Russell's not getting compensated at the end of the year for the four days of work he worked, you know, I had, I had a client once say, and I'm sure you've had this too, you know, the bill's like $50,000 or something. And they said, what should be worth half? And I said, okay, well, I don't agree with you, but explain to me how it's worth half because I've got to go get this approved. So, you know, if you can explain, and they can't, it's just, they just pick numbers out of the hat and whatever. And anyway, thankfully that's few and far between it's, you know, what don't you like about the legal profession? It's, it's, the fact that we're in a service industry. And I think sometimes people just don't have the respect for the time we spend on stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have unrealistic expectations of, you know, what, sh- what things should cost and, and what they should. But again, thankfully that's very few and far between. And oftentimes we see the best of people and, you know, they're grateful for the work we do and they're happy to, 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 pay what's been estimated and what, what's reasonable and all these things. And I right. think, in fact, a lot of it, if I think about it, is more established business people or businesses that have been doing things for a while, they understand that. It's it's oftentimes in cannabis, someone comes in with no experience. Well, I'm going to open a store. I've taken my life savings or my mom gave me a loan. They have no idea what they're doing. And that's okay. Like That's their prerogative to open a store. But then they also don't have an idea of how professional services work. And then that's when they think, well, why... Why did you charge me for the caller? I sent you a text message and I said, well, it's no different than sending me an email. And I answer it over email. Like the fact that the medium yeah. has changed, <laughs> the fact that you got legal advice on something you asked for. And, and I spent time that I could have been doing on something else for it. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. I don't want to harp on it, but you asked what, you know, what's, what's the frustrating no, I, part. And I think it's, it's more of a service lawyer thing than, than anything else. Yes. And, but I would suggest that, and you pointed out just now that, I think it's particular to the cannabis industry because it's so new and because there's this idea. I mean, even just in Ontario with the the whole lottery 
to get a store, the whole like anybody can do this and weed was illegal and now it's legal and oh, I love weed. I've smoked weed when I was a kid and now I, I can, I want to sell, you know, like there's this, this um, idea that anybody could do it. And so uh, they just, everybody just dove in. And like you said, not understanding just general business practices or, or general uh, uh, re- relationships with professionals like lawyers and accountants. So it's, it's like a crash course for a whole bunch of people moving, trying to move through this system to get licensing and, and operations right. up. You know? And some of them get it. And look, you, know, uh, you never say it to people because why would you? But it becomes pretty obvious relatively quickly. There's some surprises. Who's going to do well and who's going to do not based on the fact that it's my first thing, my first foray into business. I love weed. It's all, it's great. But you can tell as they engage with you and working through whether it's a contract or a license application, they're picking it up and they're understanding it and they're getting it. And those same people, you know, a year later have three stores. Um, And then there's other people who, you know, and this is where like some of it, I just, you know, when you're younger, it's hard to let the stuff go, but it's like, I just let it go because it's like, look, if you want to grind me about, I, and I've said this flat out to people like, you know, let's say the bill's $7,500 and they're sending lengthy emails about why it's $500 too high. Say, I don't care. I said, but you know, like I, 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 I don't mean that. And I don't care. I hear what you're saying. It's not worth either of our time to have a lengthy discussion about why you think it's slightly too high. Tell me what you think is fair and I'll try to work with you on that. Like, let's just cut to the chase and work on something that's reasonable to get through as opposed to, you know, sending an encyclopedia Britannica about, you know, well, there's, you know, three extra sentences. No one's ever done this, but you have three extra sentences (laughs) here and there and the other. And my personal view is, look, if that's how you're going to do business with me and I'm helping you, like I'm, I'm on your side here, right? Yeah, and, right. <laughs> you know, I've got, I know other lawyers who aren't so reasonable, but I'm, I, 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 I am a reasonable person. And, you know, I say, let's work on it. What do you think's reasonable? Let's try to come up with something. If you can't work with me on that, you're just going to flunk in business generally. And it's kind of like, okay, you know, we'll work on the account. And either we, we come to something that's agreeable, we continue to work together in the future, or, you know, maybe not, but I'll, I'll give you something that makes you okay. And at least if we're not going to work together because I think you have unreasonable expectations of what things should cost, at least on this one, you got what you wanted, you've paid what you thought was a fair price, best of luck to you. But those people are often the ones that, you know, end up closing up shop and do other things. And I have to assume it's because they treat their landlords, their suppliers, their employees in the same fashion. And it's just not, it's not going to get you where you need to go if you've got that attitude. Right. Good point. You know, in terms of um, the lottery and the explosion of, of, of stores and, you know, boy, what a, what a boondoggle that the lottery system was from, you know, the fact it existed to all the changes in it. But, you know, what really at this point in, in the chronology of Ontario retail, like this whole issue of clustering and there being too many stores. And I said to someone recently, like, I don't blame the, everyone says like they blame the retailers, but if you think about how this system was set up, you know, you have to go to the AGCO basically with a lease already signed, right. To, to get a, to get a license, to get yeah. an application. And yeah. so 
what does that mean? Okay, first of all, you have to find available space. Then you have to find available space in a location that's going to be suitable for a good store. Then you have to find available space in a suitable location where the rent makes sense, which obviously didn't for a lot of people. And then you, you put that into the AGCO and maybe three months later, four months later, depending on the timeline, six months later, early days, when it gets to public notice for the first time, you then learn, oh my gosh, there's five other people on my block that are doing the same thing. And people right. say, well, of course, it's Queen West, it's King West, it's Dundas, you should have known. And it's like, what did you want these people to do? do you just avoid Queen West altogether when they found something because there might be people there? You know, I think if they would have just been a little, if the AGCO, um, or, or more accurately, the rules that the AGCO had to follow mm-hmm. uh, or that they set, I, gotta, I have to think, I think the AGCO, that could have been done I don't know. I'm trying to think of what it has been done by regulation or by the standards. But anyway, if they just want to change the rules to make the pending locations transparent almost as soon as they go in, Hmm. you know, prudent business people could have then taken a look before they signed a lease and said, okay, uh, you know, I'm not going to open here. There's five other stores pending, right? And, you know, I don't blame the retailers. I blame the system for putting them in the spot. And then, then there's the whole location issue r- close to schools or what people thought were schools. You know, in my neighborhood, there's a Montessori and the, uh, the parents uh, who, uh, who sent their kids to the Montessori were up in arms and opposing the cannabis store that was like a block away. And, and, and they're not a school. Right in the in the in the in the definition of the Education Act, and there was this whole, but it's a school, and no, it's not a school, and all, you know the the clarity of the regulations and the registrar standards could have been a little sharper in terms of as what you're saying the the timing the the uh, the transparency and and all the issues surrounding location too. Right. Well, I had a case, a reported case. You'll you you can find it, and maybe I'll tell you about it after we're off off air, if you will. Um, where a client you can't talk about it on air. Well, well, you know, like well, you can look it up, and we can. I'll tell you about the case, <laughs> but I'll, I don't, I'm not going to tell you who it is because you know it's it's an unfortunate situation for them, and I feel for them. Okay. And they've got stores open, and when you pull up the case, you'll be able to find it. No problem. I'll tell you the name of it after. It's a it's a reported decision, right? But I don't okay. want to necessarily throw it directly out there that the client had a, a bad a bad break. Sure. But like the situation was, um, they signed a lease before there was an open application system, so they knew the lottery was going along, and they thought they knew the open application system was coming, so they they signed a lease, they built out the store. And they measured. They knew there was a school nearby and they measured. But they measured by basically using the street, which, for lack of a better expression, is um, shortest publicly available route, right? And as we all know now, the AGCO doesn't measure like that. They measure as the crow flies or in a straight line. And I really felt for, for, for the client because you know, one, they've signed a lease and they've spent all this money building out the store. And when they put the application in, it got hard stopped right away. And they, you know, they said, what are you talking about too close to school? We measured this. And the issue was at that time, I have to think to, to be 100% certain, but 
it, everyone knew it had to be 150 meters from a school, mm-hmm. but it didn't say how they were going to measure. There was nothing in the registrar standards or the, or the, the retail handbook, nothing. It's been changed since. Um, <laughs> right. and, so, and so the argument was, and, and as, you, as you know, going to court to challenge this is very difficult, but the client had no choice. It was either give up and you're not getting a license or throw the Hail Mary and hope a judge, it's three judges actually, in divisional court, would agree right. with you. And, you know, judges, as you can imagine, aren't so inclined to, to look at the rules in a way that puts a store close to schools. But it was just so ridiculous in that, number one, there was no guidance at all on, to my recollection, uh, at that time as to how they were going to measure. And moreover, the way they measured served no rational purpose at the time because, we, as we said in the case, in order to get to the school within 150 meters, you would have to traverse a high rise. You'd have to climb over people's backyards. <laughs> and there's, there's literally no way to get there. Right. And, and, and the test is, you know, was it within a reason, was the, the decision to measure in this fashion, a straight line, within a reasonable range of options? And the answer to the court says is it was. Um, and had you picked up the phone and called them, um, it, I find this funny, too, because the AGCO said in the case, um, if, if they just would have called us, we would have told them. And I, in my head, I'm thinking, no way. I said, yeah. do you know how many clients have called and we've called and we say, how does this work? And they say, we don't provide legal advice, which I always right. think is, is crazy because the AGCO is the judge and the jury, right? Like they're, they're obligated to give legal advice. I they're agree. the ones yeah. who are the arbiter, right? They're but making yeah. the decision. And the, the best example of that is, um, and again, I'm not knocking anyone in particular at the AGCO. I'm knocking the, the way the system is currently designed. Um, you know, it comes with promotion and, and advertising. And, you know, clients will call up the AGCO or try to call Health Canada, who I don't know what it is now, but there was a while where you'd send an email and you get a response eight or nine months later. <laughs> but the answer is, we don't provide legal advice. Do what you're going to do. And we'll tell you after if it's a problem. And I thought, right, right. why are we doing this? Like someone is actively... And I think this might change in the future. And I've said as much, like the AGC has asked me, like, what do you think? I said, I think you need to change this or get it changed if it's not you and if it's the provincial government is, you know, why would you want someone to take a chance and do something that's not compliant when you can do, I get it, there's legwork to analyze it and provide some, you know, it's an extra service, but at least you're preventing in in in. Uh, perhaps a significant way, non-compliant promotions and advertising from ever existing because you're going to vet them before they go out. When people are coming to you asking for approval, you say, we don't provide legal advice, but we're sure as heck going to tell you when you're wrong right. in six months from now. You know, and so, <laughs> right. like the AGCO, I think on the whole has been very good and they, you know, they, they're doing the best they can in a new situation and they are pretty, um, fairly business oriented and they get it. I, I still, you know, it's frustrating. We have clients who wait on licenses and, you know, just tell me what I'm going to know because I've got people I have to lay off or I have right. to hire. I'm, I'm paying a fortune in rent because I signed a lease on Queen West with seven other people. Um, you know, and yes. it's just like, just, just tell us. 
but you know that's government in general, right? It's no different than the passports and health cards and all this other stuff. So it's um, it's just unfortunate when you've got a super hyper regulated industry um, that we haven't got to a point yet where it's much more functional and much more practical. And we're getting there. And you know, like I said, I, I, I don't want to knock too hard on the AGCO. It's more about the system. But you know, boy, things would be there's so many room, there's so many areas that improvement could happen if we just made a few tweaks. And, and uh, you know, an image comes to mind as you're, as you're talking about the process and how transparency of the, tra- of the process would be really beneficial to applicants because then they'd know how far along they are because they have to pay rent and pay salaries. And so uh, having that, you know, when you fill out a form online and it's like, oh, you're 25% done, you're 50% done, you keep getting that that progress bar and it, you know, that changes colors. And so, you, you know, people would know, okay, look, we're 75% there. Hang on. You know, we're almost there. Like that would really help uh, people, but okay. Well, we, we I, got, I got one now where there's um, someone who's, um, you know, they're trying to get licensed and then there was no hard stop, no apparent school. And then the, I, you know, quote unquote school, which is an education center said, I think they contacted the AGC and said, well, whoa, 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 we're a school and you can't, this, you can't license a store here. And, you know, the AGCO is looking into with the ministry of education, whether it's a school and it's been three months, four months, I don't even know. And, and the client keeps saying to them, what are you going to know? Like, you know, we've, we know all the information about who's taking classes there, how old they are, how many there are, all these things that are relevant to that definition and it's like, well, we're waiting to hear back from the Ministry of Education. And it's like, well, you know, like, let's get on with it. I think just a little bit more appreciation that there's real jobs and real, you know, things happening on the other side of it. Yes. Uh, would go a long way. But again, I don't want to be too heavy on them. I just, it's it's easy to, to, to latch on to the little things you notice over the years that drive you crazy versus all the wonderful things, you know, that they do, like, you know, process all these applications, process the paperwork, review the contracts. Um, you know, they've done a lot of very wonderful things too. But I guess, I guess it's the 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 things that drive you crazy are the ones that stick out over the years, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's a good segue to uh, talk about federally what's happening. If finally Health Canada has said yes, we're going ahead with the three year review although it is now four years. So it's a four-year review, I guess. Uh, and it's a limited scope in terms of its review. I think uh, what would help me and and people listening is uh, wh- what are some of the key issues that are going to be reviewed? And uh, what are some of the issues that are not going to be reviewed that are uh, that should be reviewed, if you know what I mean? Yeah, no, good question. You know, I know the excise tax is a big thing that's on all the producers' minds. It's just sucking them dry. Yes, um, yes. I think that'll get reviewed. I don't know what the outcome will be. Um, the I don't even know if that's in the if that's in the the um, jurisdiction of Health Canada. I think it's more of a CRA issue, excise tax, isn't it? Might be. I'd have to check. It's been a while since I looked at. Uh, you know, getting producers licensed was like three, four years ago. And, and, you know, what happens invariably with them is they get licensed and then the ones that do well generally grow to a point where they've got their own in-house counsel and they, and they learn and the good ones learn everything anyway. They learn all the, so no one's calling you to say, Hey, uh, 
how does this regulatory? No, it's like they know exactly how it works, probably better right. than you do, uh, right? Because yeah. they're dealing with it on the daily. But you know that the the packaging, um, uh, the maximum amount that can be in a package is, I think, going to be reviewed as it should be, especially with beverages where you end up with this ridiculous, uh, or we had for a long time. You know, you can only buy what is it, five or, I think it's five cans, five 355 milliliter cans, even if it was a 2% beverage, like that's, you know, you could buy five 15, uh, or no, you couldn't, you could buy five 10%, because 10% is the cap, um, beverages right. in one thing, but you could still only buy 2%, uh, five 2% uh, content beverages, which, you know, creates all sorts of problems, especially if you want to have, first of all, it's a logical um, to, to have sort of this arbitrary, you know, rule. Um, and then if you want to have a party, or you want to have a gathering and you want to have these things, you know, you're literally shuttling back and forth from the store over and over again to buy enough for your guests. And it just creates these unnecessary obstacles for, for no reason. Um, yes. And the packaging for, uh, for the company to be able to create a, a package of five cans <laughs> instead of six is just, um, I guess you know you could do like a pentagon shaped. Yeah, I had all, yeah, and I had all sorts of inquiries years ago about, uh, or, or you know, discussions with clients years ago about, you know, what is an immediate container and what is an outer container, and and this goes to the creative, you know, well, if we did this, could we package it this way? And if we did that, because they're trying to execute on certain business things, they understand it, but when you're pushing the envelope of of what's written and no one will give you an opinion in advance like the regulator yes. you know you call someone like you or me and you say well what do you think about this what like is this going to work do you think they're going to have a problem with it what if we you know tweak this a bit so no 100% and on the packaging in terms of things i don't think is going to change is this whole plain packaging limited font lots of you know warnings and stuff i'm not saying the warnings maybe shouldn't be there but I think we could loosen it up a bit. Like you look at what's happening in the States uh, in terms of packaging. I'm not saying we need to go as extreme as, you know, making it appealing to children and fluorescent colors and, you know, looks like candy and, you know, it's got cartoon characters on it or whatever, but sky's not falling in, well, at least in, in America for that reason, you know, maybe others, but I don't know. Um, and so <laughs> like, we've got this industry where, politicians and bureaucrats drafted comprehensive lengthy regulations and legislation in the abstract and now when it's sort of come to life some things don't make much sense and some things are hurting industry and if you can change those things without sacrificing you know what are we really sacrificing like what are the goals right you know the cannabis act is to you know protect children absolutely like that we, sh we don't need to compromise on that at all we might need to look at whether some things are actually helping that goal but i, I don't think you change the goal you know um and the other thing is you know the one that's always interesting is we do we don't want to turn non-consumers into consumers um which i always thought was interesting because you know what is in theory, that's easy. That's an easy concept, right? You don't want to legalize cannabis and suddenly have a, a, a nation of cannabis zombies walking around because everyone's convinced them to smoke cannabis. 
but what does that really mean? You know, like if, if you can encourage someone to try a cannabis beverage who doesn't drink that as opposed to a beer, are we really worse off as a result of that? You know, and like, what's, why should we be pre- pre- preventing that? So it's, it's a complicated, you know, issue, but, um, and unfortunately, I think just from a government perspective, there's just no, you know, no need for them to do it. They're not the business people, right? So sorry if this is making your life a little bit difficult, but politically, it's not going to look good if we allow the packaging to be a little bit more liberal, even though you'd want it. And you can't even point to a, a direct benefit you're going to get from it, as opposed to, say, the the amount in an immediate package where you can say, well, you know, now it makes more sense because you can buy more in one shot or whatever the case may be. What about, what about uh, brand differentiation, though? You know, if my package looks different from yours, I can, like, you know, there's a difference between, uh, I guess, uh, Coffee Crisp and and um, um, Arrow, right? And the packaging, if it was the same and it had, like, Coffee Crisp in the same font as Arrow, you look at the two chocolate bars on the shelf and you go, okay, which, are they different, really? And you won't, you wouldn't know until you actually bought it. And then tried it out, right? And and I think the from the the uh, company's perspective, they want brand differentiation. They want to say, look, we we have the best cannabis here, and here's our package to 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 prove it. Yeah, it's like the Seinfeld. I don't know if you see it, where George does the candy bar lineup with the candy key, and to to see if anyone anyone can differentiate between all the candies, and at the end they're all Twix. Um, <laughs> but no, but a hundred percent, like you know, it it's a problem. It's a Brand differentiation is a problem for the LPs. It's a problem for retailers as well in terms of, you know, you walk into a store and there's a digital menu for the most part. Like some some enterprising retailers have done their best to get away from the tablet. You know, we want to be the, uh, the iStore of uh, the Apple store of cannabis, you know, but really certainly at the start and, and even now, you've got a digital menu. It, it's got names. It's got percentages, which is funny because people, uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't have the percentages, but people who are, uh, many people in the industry would argue that percentages are not the be all end all. This lower THC might get you uh, a more desired effect based on the terpenes or based on the, the strain or, or, you know, how your, your tolerance is for something. So, but like, and then you can't even see the packages. Like it's, you know, it's in a back room that they come and get or it's under the counter or, um, and so, you know, again, there's no, it really limits the creativity for brand differentiation and it, and it hurts the consumer experience because, you know, it's like, well, I, this was okay when I had it. I don't know anything about that except the name and what this bud tender is going to tell me who may or may not have any clue what they're talking about. But, but and some of them certainly do, and some of them certainly do not. But they'll t- either way, they're going to tell you something. Um, and you walk out of there spending, you know, you know, fifty bucks on a thing of pre rolls or something, only to find out it's you, know, you hate it. And it's like, you yes. know, maybe maybe the packaging alone wouldn't solve that particular problem. But you know, the point I think uh, is that it's it's just it's almost like uh, I remember when I was little you go to the beer store and the beer was all in the back and there was just the big wall of brands and they would roll it out, roll it <laughs> yes. on, the, on the wheels. It's the same thing. Right. And now yeah. we've got to the point where not only does the beer store and the LCBO display it, 
you can get it in grocery stores. And, you know, I think we're all in agreement that generally people in the industry have, have a big beef with the differentiation between alcohol and cannabis rules on the whole. Yes. And, and, uh, and, and I guess that, that leads me to ask you about harm and is the harm warranted for the current restrictions? I guess there's two, two parts of this. Does the harm of the product warrant criminal power as a, as a remedy for breaching regulations? For example, in the, as you know, in the, the Cannabis Act, you could go to jail for a long time if you possess over a certain, over 50 grams, right? There's the 30 gram threshold, which is fine. You're, you're, we're, we're legalized now, hooray. But up to 50 grams, you get a fine. And then over, you could go to jail just for possession. possession. But if you're, if you're going to grow, you could go to jail for a long time if you don't have a license. I guess what I'm asking is, is the harm still um, uh, a necessary? Is it a, a prerequisite for the harm uh, for the sorry for the penalty that we still face with this federal law? Is that is that a convoluted question for you? Is that you want me to? No, I think I pers- my personal opinion is that I don't I don't see why anyone should need to go to jail for having fifty one grams, and you know it's not automatic by any stretch. You're growing without a license. Do you need to go to jail? For, in, in terms of looking at the harm, the answer is no. Like, I, I don't think so. Um, whether or not you want to, you know, when you extend it to some aspects of it, you know, selling to minors or things like that, maybe, I don't know, like, you know, this is a real criminal law question and you got issues of specific and general deterrence and all these things and, and whatnot. But from a purely, you know, and everyone in the industry would be, you know, I've been saying for years, arguably alcohol is far more dangerous to you um, in terms of the health effects, in terms of the immediate effects, in terms of operating a vehicle or a heavy machinery. I'm not saying you should smoke cannabis and operate a vehicle, but, you know, someone who is very stoned functions far differently. I'm not saying better. I'm just saying they function differently than someone who is incredibly intoxicated. Like someone, in, you've all had that friend in, in university or, or high school, or maybe even now, who knows, um, that they get, they drink so much at the bar that they are hanging off people walking out of that. They can't walk out of yeah. the bar. They can't even, they can't function. Right. And someone who is very high, I'm not saying they should be operating a car or anything, but it's it's completely different in terms of, of the impact and the and, and how it affects people. So, and I think it's just it was easy for the government to say, well, it's new. We want to be super restrictive about it because politically, that's you know, it's an easy pill for the public that hates the the, the component of the public that does dislikes cannabis and legalization. That's something for them. We can say, look, it's very restrictive, and for the industry who doesn't like those restrictions, you know. We can say, well, you know, you're getting them. It's legalized. You can sell it. You can do it. Like, there's only a few little restrictions on top of it, right? So it's it's politically an easy move to to pull off. But you know, I think if if we're being really honest about it, it's like, you know, why can't you? Um, I'm not saying 
I'm not saying you should or shouldn't be able to display products in a way that you can see it from outside the store. And I'm not saying you should or should not be able to allow a minor into the store. Those are complicated questions. You know, if someone wants to bring their six-year-old in to the LCBO to pick up a bottle of wine after the grocery store, that's okay. But if someone wants to, you know, go in with a six-year-old to pick up some pre-rolls or some beverages for the party tonight, well, you can't do that. You got to leave your kid in the car. You got to take them home and come back. Like that, that doesn't make sense. But um, if we're restricting it to 19 plus inside the store, why can't we display, you know, why can't things be out? Why can't um, we have more liberal rules so the customer understands the product better and, you know, takes that advertising? Is the harm that we're going to take it home and um, the, the fancy advertising is going to um, attract children to it? Well, you know, I would say that's a parenting con concern and problem. And two, you know, it depends on how old the child is, but like edibles are one thing, right? Like edibles, I'm, I'm of the view that, you know, there's childproof packaging, but every time, it seems like every time you read in the news about a child with edibles, there was some sort of access to that product in the house that was stored in a way that it shouldn't, shouldn't have been stored. But, you know, if it's flour and it's got a childproof, like, are you like, I don't know, I got to think about how an eight-year-old thinks, but like, is an eight-year-old going to be able to get it, break it up, grind it, you know, roll it, light it, all those things. Like, you know, I know people in high school and university that couldn't roll it. Really? So like, you know, <laughs> but again, they're complicated questions, but, and I just think the political, there's no political, there's not a lot of political currency in liberalizing those things. It's easier to just keep things hyper restrictive and not, anger the the portion of the general population that still thinks cannabis is the devil right 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 and and i just want to point out one one further irony i, I love all of your examples by the way i totally i totally uh, love your examples one one more for me is the four plant policy um you know all, all the provinces and territories are are, are uh, obviously letting people grow four plants in their dwelling unit uh, but for Manitoba and Quebec that are in front of the Supreme Court right now, and um, and yet uh, we're protecting children. So the irony of four plants at home where, where children live right. is like, how are we protecting them from those four plants? I, I had three growing in the backyard this summer, and my kids wouldn't even go near them. I, I would encourage them. Hey, look at look at my plant. Look, look, look what they're doing. They're like, yeah, whatever, dad. You're crazy. You you know leave me alone or you know it's harvest time guys you know let let's clip down the pant no I'm not interested so it's like are, how are we protecting children from cannabis if it's being able to be grown in the home and that and obviously we're you know there's a disconnect there that's a great point like it, you know you can the government trusts you with your children to let you grow plants anywhere in your house you want and basically display the flower you know inside outside you name it. But, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, a, a retail store or, or whatever, they don't trust you as a parent to bring your six-year-old into the store and, and govern appropriately. Or they don't, they don't trust you as a parent to, you know, put your 
packaging on the top shelf of your bookshelf or locked away in a cabinet. You know, so on one hand, with the exact same product, they are telling you, we trust you in this implicitly trust you in this instance. But over here, we don't trust you to make the right parenting decisions. So we're going to take it upon ourselves to take those options away from you. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you know what? Look, as a first draft, I mean, I think it was Hemingway that said first draft of anything is shit. So it's like, OK, we had the first draft. We're looking forward to second draft now of of federal uh, law. And some of these changes may occur. Some may not. Um, are, are, are there any changes that you see on the horizon for the medical side of cannabis in terms of medical retail or medical um, products being, you know, right now the the challenge I see for some of uh, the clients that I've had are that the the quantity of uh, THC or the, the concentrations of THC that you can get at the store for cream, for example, oh, you know, I've, I've got, sciatica or i've got this incredible pain and you know the cream that i buy at the store it's 50 bucks and i go through it in uh, a day because you know and i so i want to make my own if i have to make my own blah 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 i gotta go through either doing it myself or hiring somebody to do it are there any developments because this whole industry began for medical are there any developments that you see uh in terms of medical for this this wave of um of analysis. I hope so. Look, admittedly, I'm not fully ensconced in the in the in the, the minutia of the medical. I, I know there's a dis it I always find the distinction between medical and recreational, both in terms of practical nature and in terms of legalities to be interesting, in that there are definitely there are people that are taking consuming, I should say, cannabis for recreational reasons. There are people that are consuming cannabis for purely medical reasons. And then somewhere in the middle, there's people that, you know, arguably it's, well, it's recreational, but it's to de-stress. So is that medical or is that recreational? So there's there's sort of a gray area, if you will, in the middle. Um, there is certainly, and this is something, you know, where someone, where people would say, well, there should be no tax if it's medicine. And it's like, well, I get that. I do get that. But what's the difference to, from the government's perspective to you buying some flour with a prescription from, let's pick Canopy, this big company that probably most people hate. I'm, I go personally, but <laughs> pick one that everyone will, will recognize the name at least. And, um, you know, if you're ordering directly from Canopy, hypothetically, for medical, and you can get the same bud from the same plant cut from the same harvest in your store for rec, well, how does the government say, well, well, we're not going to tax this, but we're going to tax that. It's the exact same. It's literally the same plant that like that we're growing now, you know, creams, topicals, other products is an interesting concept because then it, it's sort of, you know, okay, maybe we need to look at a system where you're, if you have a demonstrated condition, um, there's the ability for higher concentrations, but those are only in certain formats and delivery methods as opposed to dried flour. But then you get in the whole, well, if I want to consume my medicine as flour, let me consume it as flour and who are you to tell me otherwise? So it's really complicated. Um, I think there's a role for the medical system going forward. I think 
you know, it, it might be the case that certainly wellness, when you talk about CBD stuff that I, and I do, I hope that will change. And I think it will change that, um, you know, you should be able to go into Shoppers Drug Mart or Rexall or pick your favorite drugstore, uh, grocery store even, and pick up some CBD cream or pick up some CBD uh, juice, infused juice or chocolate or whatever. Like there's, uh, I hope I'm not misstating the science, but there's no psychoactive effect. So like, what are we protecting against in that instance? And so, you know, if you extrapolate that further, well, why can't a pharmacy dispense cannabis products? You know, well, the answer right now is because you need a license. And if you need a retail sales license, well, first of all, you're not selling medical anymore. You're selling retail uh, recreational products. And number two, you can't get a license in a business that does anything other than sell cannabis. So like you can't have your pharmacy license. So there certainly should be, it should be more accessible. I, you know, the tax is a complicated question, but I think it's something, I don't have an answer, but it's an issue that, that shouldn't, you know, should be solved if possible. Um, and certainly a role for it, but. Okay. Last question for you. Um, Biden obviously, uh, you know, made headlines a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. I can't remember how long, but um, recently with uh, wanting to grant pardons for anybody with convictions, federal convictions of, of uh, possession. And, um, and we're looking at our leaders here thinking, well, why can't Mr. Trudeau do the same? Thoughts? Remind me, because you, I don't know if you, I never worked on any of these, but when they had the, the was it a technically a pardon system here that they put in? What was the? Yeah. So the, the technical term now for pardons is record suspensions. Right. And they passed this bill, uh, C-93, to um, allow for the waiver of the fee for the application fee so that anybody with simple possession could apply. Right. And they- um, they they expected at least ten thousand people to apply. Uh, sadly, uh, under a thousand have applied, and and I think only six or seven hundred people have received pardons in the in the time since two thousand nineteen. I think so. They're um, the, there's still over five hundred thousand folks Canadians with um, criminal records from various kinds of cannabis convictions, and the the. The uh, current ideology is well. Let let them apply for a pardon. Um, I mean, I I have my own personal thoughts on it. I think that uh, the government should grant automatic expungements for everybody right now, considering that those offenses no longer exist under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. We've got a whole new regime under the Cannabis Act, and anybody with uh, charges or sorry convictions under the uh, CDSA should have them, um, you know, expunged. Right. Uh, and no one's going to say no. Like it's not like you need to check with them and say. And someone says, "No, no, no, leave that on my record, please." Uh, yeah, right. like, you could do it automatically. You could just put out a note saying we're expunging them all. Yes, stuff. right. And, and is there not? any 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 uh, any downside to the government to to do that? Yeah. Again, uh, unless it's political, I don't I don't see it. Like if if and we're talking about possession, you know, like we're talking about possession of something that it was illegal and now it's and now it's no longer illegal and more more to the point of you know a strict technical analysis of it was illegal then it's it's legal now so it's we should get rid of it it's on top of that it's like well, what was the harm 
anyway in the first instance of just having possession, right? It's not like it's not like we are talking about expungement for trafficking, which might be more complicated because, you know, although selling cannabis with a license now is legal, trafficking without a license back then, depending on how you did it, might have come with a lot of collateral damage and harm. Like, I'm not talking about the person at your high school with the backpack. You know, I'm talking about the organization or, you know, the crime that went along with it or whether there's money laundering uh, or violence or anything like that, you know, that may or may not have even been discovered or charged. So we're talking about literally possession. And so it's hard to say that there's any rationale now that it's no longer illegal and that even when the offense occurred, tell me what the harm was in, in that moment to anyone else, right? Like there's just, there's no reason to hold that over anyone. I think automatic expungions would be a great idea. I just, you know, it's disappointing with politics a lot of the time because, you know, as you get older, you you realize and you know, we're old enough to have realized these things for a, quite a while now. You know, things don't when you're younger and you're, you know, it's like, well, the government does things because that's how it should. Like we should do these things. It's like, well, no, the government does things because um, it's popular to do it and it's logical to do it or someone's lobbying hard enough to do it. And so, you know, even with people lobbying them for expungements, it's like, well, what's what's the upside to the government, which is a sad way to analyze it. Right. But like, it's true. Like, what what do they have to gain from just expunging all these? You know, are they going to gain 5000 votes from these people that, you know, maybe, but like they're probably they've got pollsters and whatever, you know, people that work on the campaign thinking, well, yes, 5000, but you're going to probably anger the soccer moms or, you know, pick whatever group you want. The, uh, you know, the, uh, the gymnastic dads and um, there's more than 5,000 of them. So let's just leave well enough alone. Let's come up with an approach that if you want to apply, we won't charge you a fee and put it on them. Right. So it's just, you know, it's kind of sad that, you know, we, uh, I feel like sometimes our government only does what's popular and what, what suits them as opposed to what suits us. Well said, well said. Matt, it's been a total pleasure. I was going to ask you one more question, but you've already answered it in terms of all of the answers you've given. I just want to say that you, you in in discussion with you, I always I, I enjoy talking to and listening to you because you paint really good examples of um, the way things could be. You've given th- throughout this whole interview, you've given great examples of the way things could have been, and that and that was my question was like, so what do you see for the next five years? You know, you've been in five years. What do you say? That? But you've already, you already said it. So, I, I, you know. I, baby steps. Baby steps, if anything, right? is what we're going to see. And, you know, that, I don't think it's going to look like what we think of it. Could, we could be pleasantly surprised. But I don't think it's going to go all the way where we need it. Um, you know, hopefully, just other stuff too, you know, like on a provincial level. Um, um, like, why can't a hotel serve? Why can't I order a cannabis drink off of a restaurant menu if I want one? Um, that right. makes no sense, you know, and it's little things like that. And it's, it's little things though, Russell, but it, you know, as I'm sure you'd agree, it changes the big picture because it really eliminates that historical stigma when, um, you, you start seeing it on the menu everywhere, right alongside yes. the alcohol section. And people are like, Oh, well, this is interesting. They don't even have to try it. They're just aware it's more socially acceptable. And we all know people, um, certainly elderly people where, you know, before cannabis, bad, 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 
And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, my arthritis, you know, here's some capsules that I got for you from the store. Try those out. And they try and they think, wow, and it's a game changer for them. So, you know, it's and I guess this goes back to the point that the government only does what's in their interest. Maybe I mean, that's perhaps a great overstatement. But if the stigma was drastically reduced and the government wasn't worried about upsetting voters who still hold those historical views, maybe it would really help us move forward with a lot of things that, for all practical purposes, should be moving forward. Because there's really no harm um, in a meaningful way to anyone. And it's just hurting business in general. And it's, it's hurting us in general society. Great way to end it off. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Cannabis Law in Canada. As you may guess, this interview is not legal advice. And if you need legal advice, please contact a lawyer. We're always working on making this the best podcast for our listeners. So if you have suggestions for an interview or ideas for episodes, please contact us at CannabisLaw.ca. 